Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week, we welcome a good friend of the ERLC, Palmer Williams, to the podcast to discuss her new piece up at ERLC.com now about how the pandemic uniquely highlights the importance of policies that protect people with disabilities specifically the harm caused by hospitals' no-visitor policies. If you enjoy listening to Capital Conversations each week and enjoy uh, staying up to date and engaged with the work of the ERLC, go to ERLC.com policy where you can sign up for our policy newsletter. I can tell you just in the last couple of days even, not even the last couple of weeks, but uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic year of 2020, it feels like every week is a month. Uh, so in some ways, every day is a week. And within the last couple of days, ERLC has been uh, really engaged in a wide variety of work, all of which we are covering each week in our policy newsletters, the weekly newsletter on Friday, uh, Jason Thacker's technology newsletter. There are a lot of newsletters. They're awesome. But coming to you from Washington, D.C., I want to encourage you to consider signing up for our policy newsletter. Uh, Recently, Russell Moore was in The Washington Post talking about the historic vote in the Mississippi legislature over the weekend that will change their flag to take out the Confederate stars and bars of the Mississippi state flag. And he's got a piece about that. We are in uh, in the final countdown of Supreme Court decision time, decision season. Uh, so we're recording this on Tuesday, June 30th, the last day of June, where yesterday we got a decision in the June Medical Services v. Rousseau case, which uh, very frustratingly and unfortunately, the court overturned Louisiana's abortion medical standards law. And we're waiting on more cases, which will be coming down within the hour, right after we're done recording here. So if you want to keep up on all of the work that ERLC is engaged in from racial reconciliation, justice issues, immigration issues, human dignity issues, religious liberty issues, uh, consider going to ERLC.com policy where you can sign up for our newsletter. Palmer Williams is a founding partner of the Peacefield Group and specializes in legal and policy analysis related to international human rights, sanctity of life, nonprofit operations, and government affairs. She has extensive experience advocating for human rights on the international stage, including at the United Nations and living in sub-Sahara Africa, working with NGOs serving vulnerable children and victims of the HIV epidemic. Palmer earned her JD from Vanderbilt Law School and her BA in Political Science and Community Development from Vanderbilt University. She geeks out about orphan care work, Abigail Adams, and her Southern Living magazine. Palmer and her husband, Joseph, have three sons, Jack, Henry, and Teddy, and they live in Nashville, Tennessee. Palmer, welcome for the first time, which I hope will be of many times, to the Capital Conversations Roundtable. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're also joined by my colleague here in D.C., Chelsea Patterson-Sobolik. Good morning. Well, uh, listeners, if you are listening on the 4th of July weekend, happy Independence Day to you. Uh, Hopefully this is a reminder of how much 
how far our country has come. I know we're dealing with a lot of really difficult things uh, in this year of 2020. I, I've been calling it a, you know, a season, whether that season is COVID-19 or the season of really staring at the racial injustices and the history of systemic racism in our country. But it's the middle of the year now, and it doesn't feel like any of this is slowing down anytime soon. Um, so this is just, it's a full year of this. And I hope that this weekend can be filled not only with uh, with friends and family and, and rest in that, but also reflection on, on how far our country has come in realizing equality and justice and, and freedom. So Palmer, we've, we've asked you to come on this week to Capital Conversations because of a, a piece you wrote uh, last week up at erlc.com, which folks can check out in the show notes. It's titled, HHS Safeguards the Rights of Persons with Disability. So I'll, I'll say it's, it's really common knowledge uh, during this pandemic that people are having to brave their battles in the hospital alone. We recently had a good friend of mine uh, on the podcast, Stuart Hall, who contracted COVID-19. Um, he was really uh, in, a, in a bad spot in the ICU. And one of the hardest things about that whole journey, and if you listen to that podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes, you'll hear from his wife, Kelly, because he doesn't remember any of it. He was intubated in, in ICU. He was having to battle COVID-19 alone, and and Kelly was keeping up with nurses uh, and, and doctors from afar. But while that's hard for somebody like Stuart, uh, as is so often the case with, with stories of the vulnerable in our society, there is just so much more complexity uh, for people with disabilities than, than somebody like Stuart battling COVID-19. So earlier in June, the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services received a complaint from the state of Connecticut from families of adults with disabilities alleging that their loved ones had been overlooked and adversely affected specifically by the state's COVID-19 hospital restrictions. So Palmer, tell us what was happening in Connecticut. Sure, absolutely. And um, yeah, like your friend Stuart, I had to go into the hospital earlier Um uh, this month for just uh, some IV antibiotics. And I was on my own. Um, and thankfully I don't have issues with communication, but, um, it was, it was terrifying and it was, it was scary to be there by yourself. Sure. And so, um, sure. I think that really brought this issue even more, um, in, into light for me. Um, cause I, I, um, can't imagine being there without um, having someone to help me advocate um, for what I need. And so what was happening in Connecticut, so we had this, like we see across the country, um, Connecticut is not alone in this. Um, we had an executive order by the governor talking about a no visitor policy within hospitals and um, care facilities. We also um, had similar things happening at private hospitals as well. Um, and and we begin to see um, members of the disabled community coming out and, and telling their stories of how these policies were adversely affecting them um, in really dramatic ways and in ways that could be avoided. And, and I think that's one of the key things um, when we're, we're talking about cases like this. We're not advocating that there be special treatment for those with disabilities and, and all protocols when it comes to covid 19 and keeping the facilities safe and the doctors and, and the patients themselves safe. But we're really talking about a balance, right? And, and being innovative and flexible so that we're not um, stepping on the rights of, of fellow image bearers. And so um, in Connecticut, we saw a couple of examples. Um, there was a, as you mentioned, there was a complaint filed with the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of HHS and several people within the disability community came forth and told their stories. And one was 
was a mother of an adult son with cerebral palsy. He had to go in for a surgery and he had been, um, he had had surgeries like this many times in the past and it had gone really well. His mom had been there to um, help explain to him what was happening so that he could um, help make decisions for himself so he could have some autonomy. Um, But this time she wasn't allowed to do that. She was given an iPad to speak with the doctor and she just saw her son being wheeled away screaming and confused. And when he awoke from the surgery, he um, and didn't have anyone he knew to help him communicate with the staff. He had to be pharmaceutically and physically restrained for days on end, um, which was unnecessary because if um, his mother or caregiver had been there, it would have been a very easy um, explanation for him. And, and if past surgeries had been an indication, it would have been right. really smooth. It's almost like somebody being able to speak the same language to their loved one. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. And that the second case that we saw was this private hospital in Connecticut. There was a mom with short-term memory loss and her family had developed a very sophisticated um, pattern of um, eye blinking and nonverbal communication with her. And so when she went into the hospital um, and was unable to have a caregiver with her to help exactly as you're saying, Jeff, speak her language so that she could then understand what was happening to her and help make decisions, um, inform decisions about her own care. Um, she also had to be tied down and sedated um, and became very agitated. And it was just an avoidable situation and and, um, and progressively got worse and worse. And so Advocacy groups went to the Office of uh, Civil Rights with this case, and thankfully, a um, an early case resolution was struck with the state of Connecticut and with this private hospital to ensure that people with disabilities were not denied the reasonable access um, to the needed support persons. Um, and they, the governor, did come out and give a new executive order, making sure that that the needs um, of those were protected. And I think kind of the keys there are that you know, they have equal access to medical treatment. They're able to effectively communicate to the best of their abilities, and they can make those informed decisions so that they're not um, being treated as a charity case or someone who isn't cognitively able when they are. Right. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, Palmer, one, one of the things I really liked about your piece when I read it last week is one of the lodestars of our work is thinking about who are the people that society so easily makes invisible in our culture. And those are the people that as as citizens of, of a greater kingdom where Christ uh, ensures that nobody is invisible uh, to to the Father, uh, we, we go and be advocates for them in our public square and to make sure of that. And uh, Chelsea, I'm reminded of a conversation we had with a uh, with an advocate for vulnerable kids early on in March, right when this all started. Um, our friend Jed talking about how we should be thinking about how the pandemic would affect vulnerable kids. Can you can you give our listeners uh, insight into what that conversation uh, was like? Just as he was helping us think about our advocacy work during a time of uh, pandemic, specifically for vulnerable kids. Yeah, Jeff. So the friend you mentioned that we chatted with um, is Jed. He runs the Christian Alliance for Orphans and just they do phenomenal work. But what he was sharing with us in March and has continued to prove true is that so, I mean, like you said, so often there are people that we tend to overlook because of lack of proximity or lack of seeing. And some of the most vulnerable people in our country are 
kiddos in foster care or kiddos at risk of entering into foster care um, and, and children and youth that don't have a safe, permanent and loving home. And one of the things we've talked about on our website and through podcast conversations is that children at risk of abuse often will have um, safe eyes on them, whether that's teachers or um, when they go in for a doctor's appointment or just playing with other kids in the neighborhood. And they won't have those those adults looking out for them. So abuse cases have spiked in hospitals, with with hospitals seeing um, abuse victims. Um, but but Jed just encouraged us and reminded us to um, to remember again, Jeff, like you said, those people that we we tend to overlook. And Palmer, I so so appreciated your piece because I I mean I had no idea that was happening until I read your piece and was just shocked and like you said it, it's such a correctable correctable thing that can easily be fixed to make accommodations for those those people we referenced um several times OCR at HHS for those who might not be familiar with what that division within the Department of Health and Human Services does. Can you explain a little bit more about that department and why they were the appropriate ones to file a complaint and and how they go about making those those resolutions? Yeah, sure. So the Office of Civil Rights is within um, HHS and it um, is kind of a clearinghouse for any sort of violations of civil rights within the United States. So say um, you have feel like you've been discriminated against on the basis of race or um, ethnicity, um, and in this case, disability as well is is under um, that that um, umbrella, especially if it's a state has um, done that. And so, in this case, the the state of Connecticut was who they were. Com- uh, the complaint was addressed to, and so the Office of of Civil Rights then does an investigation and works with that entity to hopefully come to a resolution. And we're going to see, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about a case in Tennessee, but that's been happening quite often within the disability community in this era of COVID because there's been quite a few uh, cases that have come up of systemic discrimination. And most of it, honestly, um, kind of like as you were talking about, Chelsea, is not an intentional discrimination. It's just a lack of thought and a lack of flexibility when it comes to these kind of policies. And I think when we're talking about any sort of vulnerable group of people, what we know as Christians is we are all imprinted with the Imago Dei. We have this inherent dignity and we have this unique personhood that that the Lord has given to each of us. And I think that often our policies don't match up with that uniqueness. And I think especially when you're talking about disability policy, but I would also I think probably across the board, the more um, we can allow for flexibility and deference to really think through what does this person need to um, to have access to the, the basic necessities that we're talking about. I think that's really important. And, and we really see that play out in these cases. Um, I really appreciate that overview, Palmer. How did Connecticut respond to um, HHS? Yeah, so thankfully, they responded um, with a new executive order by the governor saying um, that, yes, that those with um, disabilities were able to have a caretaker, one to two caretakers who could switch out depending on the needs. Um, But then they also put in place um, really great screening to make sure that whoever the caregiver was, was properly screened for COVID, that they are not going to be putting anyone at risk, including the patient or the doctor's. 
So they struck a great balance of making sure that everyone was safe and that protocols were followed while also allowing for flexibility to make sure um, that that uh, their citizens were able to get the care that they needed. So did that apply just to Connecticut or to, was it nationwide? Yes. So that was just Connecticut. And what we're seeing with most of our COVID policies, we know a lot of the shutdowns are happening or they're all happening at the local level, um, even sometimes at the the micro local level at the city or county level, but this was statewide um, an executive order. So we, this was just for Connecticut and, and that's really where the cases are going to be brought um, to OCR. So it's, a, you know, when a, a state or local government is the one making um, those calls. You say a uh, micro level, I'm just imagining a homeowners association coming up with their own COVID policies and uh, the... <laughs> The it almost feels like it almost feels like it could be I'm a sure. sitcom, you know, like right, a, right. a neighborhood, <laughs> a neighborhood coming up with their own COVID policies in and out. Thankfully, the the plague has not reached uh, reached that sort of a, a threatening level yet. But uh, Palmer, turning to Tennessee, because we had already scheduled you to to come on the show before uh, we knew there was going to be another Office of Civil Rights uh, resolution. Uh, specifically dealing with uh, protecting people with disabilities. So uh, tell us about what uh, what developed in be- between the state of Tennessee and OCR uh, this past Friday. Sure. So my home state of Tennessee, and I'm really proud of them for how quickly they moved um, and, and dealt with um, what could have been a potential potentially catastrophic issue. Um, So in Tennessee, um, several years ago, pre-COVID in 2016, um, there was a guidance that was developed um, called the Guidance for the Ethical Allocation of Scarce Resources During a Community-Wide Public Health Emergency. Is there an acronym for that, or are you going to have to repeat that multiple times? I'm going to have to repeat that over here. No, so a CSC (laughs) plan. So it's what, how do we allocate scarce resources, in this case, ventilators, that we know um, are a major issue in, in helping fight COVID. How do we allocate those if we begin to run out? And again, this was several years ago. It came to the attention of our governor, um, Governor Lee, several weeks ago. He didn't even know that this um, policy existed. And as soon as he did, he said, "Okay, we've got to fix this. And in the meantime, a a complaint was filed with OCR. So the state of Tennessee got to work hand in hand. And and to your point, um, Chelsea, I think this kind of helps to explain OCR was able to provide some great guidance to the state as the state was already working on this issue. The guidance said that if you um, were a person with an advanced uh, neuromuscular disease, metastatic cancer, traumatic brain injury, dementia, or other disabilities, you um, could be discriminated against from the use of a ventilator in times of scarcity. So um, say that you have multiple dystrophy and it's you versus another person, they could say, well, we're not going to give it to the person with multiple dystrophy just on the basis of of you having that diagnosis, not with the doctor having really done an in-depth personal dive into will this person benefit from the ventilator. So it was a cross-the-board categorical discrimination which we know um, is is not okay. And so the Tennessee, thankfully, was able to reach a quick resolution and they have um, redone their guidelines. And, and in a really great new policy, they've said there's no categorical exclusions based on disability or resource intensity. Um, so they you can't make an assumption that just based on the diagnosis you see on the chart that a person um, should be lower down the list for a ventilator. 
Um, they also took away the long-term survivability considerations. So um, your metastatic cancer can't be a determinant of whether or not you're going to get that ventilator just on its face. And so this was a really big deal for Tennessee to say, we're going to stop looking at these stereotypes and categories, and we're going to treat you as we would any other patient. We're going to go through the list of, would you benefit from this life-saving technology? And it's just, again, leveling that playing field, making sure that those with disabilities are treated as, as a person and, and by their individual um, symptoms and needs that they're presenting at the time, not based on a label that's been placed on their chart. Um, I will say, uh, this is actually the fourth um, OCR um, resolution that has been reached about discrimination against patients with disabilities during COVID-19. Um, so Alabama was another one that had a similar crisis standard of care plan that was discriminatory. And so um, Tennessee is the fourth state that they have, um, OCR has helped um, resolve. Well, I think that's that's really good for our, our listeners to hear that this process has been working its way through the intergovernmental system and especially with cases really, unfortunately, again, on the rise across the nation uh, in places that really didn't see COVID in that first uh, surge when it was really affecting New York and the tri-state area and Washington state. You know, it really wasn't seen in a lot of uh, different parts of the country. I, In fact, I even remember, Palmer, you sharing photos with us of uh, Vanderbilt, the Vanderbilt hospital system fully prepared with all of these rows and rows of, of extra beds long before anything came. And, and I don't think they had to use them uh, back then. Um, and yet Not here yet, we are. But they're still ready to go. <laughs> right. Here we are again. And it's really good that a lot of the country has been able to prepare, not only preparing overflow beds and things like that, but also preparing the more nuances of uh, how state policy can affect uh, can affect the vulnerable. Uh, and so it's a really good thing. And I and I hope that these resolutions that have happened, and, and it's another good example of why advocacy groups are so critical to the public policymaking process, because it was these advocacy groups being able to see, hopefully even before there was a problem and say, how do we fix this so that our crisis standard of care uh, better serves those in need. So Palmer, zooming out from the uh, the COVID-19 moment and crisis standard care and all of that, let's think broader about the history of laws protecting people uh, with, with disabilities. And I want to talk specifically about the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, because uh, at the end of 2018, when our 41st president, George H.W. Bush passed away, who I am uh, very partial to as a as a Texan, as uh, somebody from Houston, uh, and even more importantly, as a uh, as an Aggie, because he and uh, his presidential library is on the campus of Texas A and M, where he and uh, First Lady Barbara Bush uh, are are in their final resting place uh, there on our campus by their library. I I really thought it was awesome how much conversation. Uh, his funeral and all the remembrances of uh, the the first Bush administration, uh, the conversation around the ADA, uh, because in some ways, President Bush being the last president of the of the World War II veteran generation, that greatest generation, in some ways, the ADA was an example of the kind of really monumental bipartisan legislation 
it was like the end of an era in some ways, which is really sad to think about what politics looks like in 2020 and how bitterly divided and tribal and partisan everything, even during a pandemic, seems to be these days. You reflected on that with a with a piece about President Bush and the ADA. So can you talk about, one, what the ADA is? Because I think it's possible that some people are like, I think I know what that is, but I'm not exactly sure because it's just a part of our life now, three decades later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990, um, and it was a civil or it is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination based on disability. So it's similar to um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that, you know, we know um, prohibited discrimination on race, religion, sex, national origin and other things. Um, But the ADA um, specifically prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability in employment at the state and local government level. So I think courthouses and and city halls needed to be accessible. Uh, Public accommodations, so places that the public go, restaurants, stores, the doctor's office, that sort of thing, Um, and commercial facilities. Then transportation, so public transportation, and telecommunications. And so this, um, before 1990, before this was passed, we had a few laws that would protect some of the rights of those with disabilities, but not really. And a lot of for the most part, a lot of people with disabilities lived in the shadows for a long time in America. And um, the the ADA actually covers both mental and physical medical conditions. So, and it doesn't actually have to be a severe or permanent disability. So it could be a, um, you know, after a surgery and you're wearing a cast and you have a, you need a wheelchair, that sort of thing as well. And so personally for me, um, I was in a car accident when I was eight years old in 1995, and I have a spinal cord injury, so I'm a paraplegic, and I use a wheelchair to get around and have since I was eight years old. And so for me, I don't know what it was like to live as a person with a disability before the ADA, um, because I was injured in 1995, and so I have the luxury of always having those protections. Now, does did the ADA all of a sudden wipe out every stare in... Um, in the public or did it wipe out um, every sort of barrier that I was going to face? No, I definitely still face a lot of barriers um, in my everyday life, but it did create a legal mechanism to help me to deal with those barriers when I um, encounter them. And then additionally, it was the spirit of the law. um, And I think it was spoken to so well by um, President Bush to say, we no longer are going to allow Americans with disabilities to live in the shadows. We know that they have an inherent dignity from our creator. We know that they have things to give and that they are not objects of charity, but they are, um, we want them to be vibrant members of our society. And we want to help make sure that they are able to do that. And so to me, the ADA really, more than anything, is, is a sign that our society values all life and um, that we want our neighbors and friends with disabilities to be part of the conversation. And, and personally, I'm, um, like I said earlier, a mom of three boys and I'm an attorney and, um, and I like to travel and all of these things are affected monumentally by the ADA. I'm able to go to the store with my three boys, park in a spot where I can get them out of the car and we can go in together. And that's not a small thing. That seems like a very normal activity, but um, Pre-1990, that was not a reality for a lot of of our um, friends with disabilities. And so I think we, um, I'm thankful that I live in a time 
post the ADA. Sure, we have lots of work to do, but I do think um, that we have been given a great gift in our country that we have this law that um, provides us this mechanism uh, for change and for improvement. If folks are listening closely, even to just how you discussed and talked about the ADA and the history of that bill and your story, they'll pick up on the ways in which you talk about your story and this issue. So help us think about how how should we talk about disability? Because it for for many people who maybe don't have a family member uh, who who has difficulty communicating, uh, like the story of the young man with cerebral palsy or Maybe they don't have a grandparent who's ever had memory loss, or maybe they don't know anybody who uses a wheelchair to get around. Could you give us some just tips and things to think about when thinking and talking about disability? Yeah, absolutely. I have a couple of um, kind of go-tos. I'd say one, I mean, I know this sounds really simple, but the golden rule, how would you want to be treated if you were a person who suddenly lost your ability to walk or lost your ability to communicate, um, you would want to be treated with dignity and respect. And so let's figure out how do we bring those things out of people. Um, I think no one wants to be seen as a charity case or to be pitied. That's not what advocacy looks like in my mind. Um, Or we've talked a lot about allyship in the last um, couple of weeks. I think any of the vulnerable populations in our country want to be seen as valuable and they want to be given a chance and the opportunity to um, succeed. And so I think seeing this as a partnership. I also think, Jeff, one of the coolest things that I've learned from other friends with disabilities, um, my sister-in-law has an intellectual disability and she and her friends have taught me so much about what dependence looks like. And I think as Christians, we know um, the scriptures tell us in our weakness, we are made strong but that's not a value that I think our society often promotes. We are told to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're supposed to do it on our own. But I think that there's such beauty in recognizing our dependence for those who are able-bodied and those who have a disability to say, we all need each other. And there are things that um, that our brothers and sisters in Christ with disabilities can um, gift to us and vice versa. And so instead of seeing um, dependence on one another as um, a something to be avoided or pitied, instead we could begin to actually create community. And so then it's no longer the um, those that are being served and those that are serving, but it's vice versa. And I think when it comes to empowering our friends with disabilities and helping them um, to uh, be able to to be the person that God has created them to be. I think seeing first seeing what are they, what are their gifts? Instead of looking at what they can't do first, look at the things that the Lord has created them to do. And what if what are they being called into? What are the things that He has uniquely gifted them with? Um, and and start there and then think, okay, what kind of accommodations or what kind of support can we give them to so that they can flourish with those gifts? I think we can start just that shifting of perspective of, of where we're starting. And then I think the other thing I would, I would mention is to those that are listening um, who have a disability or have a need, I think um, one thing that we as a community need to do better is just give grace. Um, we have got to to be gentle with those who are trying to help but maybe don't know how um, or who maybe are saying weird things or who are well-intentioned, I think we can give grace and we can say, 
let me show you how to help and let me show you what I need. Um, and, and, um, I think that the more that we can present it as a, a learning opportunity, because like you said, Jeff, there's so many people that don't have that experience. Um, and the more that they interact with those who have overt needs, maybe they'll begin to see their own needs as well. And we can begin to develop more of a, uh, interdependent community. Palmer, those are such helpful suggestions. And I'll just say from um, my perspective in seeking to learn, one of the things that I've noticed is just the language I use. And you've you've taught me so much and other people with disabilities have taught me so much and just um, language matters and, and the language we choose to use or choose to use matters as well. So um, I, I really appreciate those those suggestions and I mean, you're exactly right. Proximity matters so much. And um, those those suggestions for people that don't have natural proximity, um, I, I really hope our listeners will take and um, take to heart. Um, so I want to talk about the local church and why this matters to the local church and how, how our listeners can make a difference locally in their churches to serve brothers and sisters in Christ in their local communities with disabilities and special needs. I think that's such a great question uh, because we know from the scriptures that um, that the the church is the bride of Christ and the light of the world, and um, and so we have to get this right. We have to get um, including our brothers and sisters with disabilities right um, first and foremost in our churches, and we're not. Um, and I would say in my life, so I've been in a wheelchair for twenty five years, I think. I'm bad at math. I think 25 years. Um, and you also I have three kids we, under five. So you know, I do. And the there's lack of sleep that. and I <laughs> need more coffee. Um, but there's a reason I went to law school and not uh, any sort of math related. Field. Um, <laughs> but I will say one of the places that I have run into the most physical barriers in my life are churches. Um, so many churches, I can't even begin to tell you. And and that's there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Historical buildings that are going to be expensive to change. Um, small congregations who just don't have the funds to do so. And I get it. And so we have to have grace that it's going to be a slow change. But uh, that is the, if I'm walking into it or rolling into a church and I'm unable to get into the building, that, that immediately shuts down. This is not a place that's friendly or welcoming to me. Same with my, um, my sister-in-law who, um, as I mentioned, has an intellectual disability. If there's not any sort of, um, help for her parents, um, you know, a special, um, Sunday school class or a buddy that can go with her and sit with her during church, her parents can't go to that church, um, because she has a lot of sensory issues and is not, does not feel, um, welcome in the church. And, um, so I say all that to say, we have work to do in the local church to let those um, with disabilities know they are not just welcomed, they are needed and desired. Um, and that, um, we want to be one of the first places that they feel comfortable and that they're able to go. And it will take um, time and, and it will take funds, honestly, to, to do some physical um, changes or to maybe staff up if we um, need to, to get some extra staff to help with special needs planning. But I do think, Chelsea, that you're right, that it is so important that we not just um, say that that those with disabilities have value, but that we show them that they do and that we include them in our congregations and in our um, 
on our ministry teams too. I think there's so many people um, I know with disabilities who have incredible spiritual giftings, especially when it comes to just maturity of their faith. They've walked through a lot. Um, and I think that they, um, thinking of them not just as um, how can we serve them in ministry, but how can they serve our congregations? Palmer, I, I love that. That is such such a good word and, and such good advice. I would just say, as as uh, my dad is a pastor and uh, his church uh, south of Houston, Lake Jackson, Texas, uh, has come a really long way in their ministry, specifically to kids with special needs. Um, and one of the ways that they have really made a lot of progress is just leaning on professionals in the community who uh, work in the school system uh, with kids uh, with different intellectual disabilities and, and different things like that, such that the classroom uh, where those kids go, it, it's created this incredible community within their church family where the parents know they can go to Sunday service and their kids are not just taken care of and safe, but they are loved and treasured as any other kid would be in the children's ministry. And the thing that I that I love that that showcases is that it's okay for pastors not to have all of the answers, but lean on those who do and who do this for a living Monday through Friday in the school system or or wherever it may be in an advocacy group or, or local government or a law firm uh, representing these people. And I, I think our churches can go a long way when they realize that there might be people in their own congregation who are professionals who can help them answer some of those questions and think through where where does your building need to be modified? Where do your policies need to be reworked? What kind of ministry can we do specifically for these people in our in our church? Um, so in the same way that, you know, we uh, lean on you and depend on you to help us think through these issues, even as policy advocates, I'd just encourage pastors to think about who are the professionals in their community that they can lean on to help them make some of these uh, make some of these changes that can go such a long way in welcoming their, not only their brothers and sisters in Christ, but also their neighbors who we want to reach with the gospel. And we don't want anything to be a barrier to that gospel message being proclaimed in the community. And how neat would it be if the church was um, who the government and the world looked for how to be an inclusive community? I think that that we can absolutely lead in that way. We should be leading in that way. And and there are some really, really neat ministries that are um, doing that. But I think across the board, we... Do you want to give us uh, some of those ministries that people might want to reach out to? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, Key Ministries is um, doing a lot of really neat things as far as helping churches, equipping churches to think through how are um, we making sure that our... Um, buildings are accessible and our our worship styles are helpful to those, especially with um, kind of more invisible disabilities. So those who have autism or other intellectual disabilities. I think that CAFO actually, um, who um, Chelsea referenced earlier, the Christian Alliance for Orphans has a lot of, um, has a great conference and, and they are, they, um, I know I'm going to be on a panel this fall about what does it look like to serve um, those coming home through adoption who have um, disabilities. Um, I think both of those are have great resources as far as um, what churches can do to where they can start. Right. Uh, well, Palmer, thanks again uh, for coming on Capital Conversations. Thanks, guys. 
This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. If you're enjoying listening to us each week, consider subscribing wherever it is that you're listening, whether that is Apple Podcast or Spotify or any other any other place. Uh, and if you enjoyed and found this conversation helpful, consider giving us a rating and a review. Uh, that, along with you sending this episode uh, to maybe a pastor or ministry leader in your church who can think through some of these ideas and how they can better, uh, how your church can be a more welcoming place uh, to your entire community and your entire body. Uh, Consider sending them this episode, giving us a rating review. That really will help others find our show and come join uh, our roundtable here on Capital Conversations. Thanks also to our production team and for you for joining us today. Resources from this conversation, of which there are many, and I would highly encourage you to check them out. They are available in the show notes as well as erlc.com to equip you and your church. 